On this episode, Mantras, Billionaire's Ranches, Fried Chicken, DFL, and Yellowstone. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, dear listeners. So we have started a Patreon page for the podcast. If you've never heard of Patreon, think of it as kind of like a tip jar. Basically, if you want to help us keep the lights on, now you can by subscribing to us on the page for a monthly sum. Now, this is totally optional, and of course the show will still be free. We will have monthly gear giveaways for our subscribers starting at the end of August 2022, and possibly some more perks down the road. If you'd like to help out, just go to patreon.com forward slash A-T-A-P. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash A-T-A-P. Thanks again. Here's the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Almost There Adventure podcast. Today, we have Gary Chrisman with us, and I'm very excited. So the, we've been wanting to talk to him for a while about this big trip that he did, but with Yellowstone being in the news recently, we thought it was even more relevant and just kind of jump-started it back in. Um, Gary is a close friend, an amazing bikepacker now. He does all these bikepacking adventures, but he also has a long history of guiding and outdoor uh, crazy stuff. I've actually seen some recent pictures of uh, him hucking himself off of mountains on skis. So he has a long history in the outdoors doing adventurous things. Um, we're excited to speak with him today about his bikepacking trip around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Did I say that right, Gary? Correct. The GYE. The GYE. Um, and, yeah, the GYE. And so we're super excited. So Gary, welcome to our podcast. And why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. This is pretty cool. I've listened to a few of these. Um, and I think you're, what you're doing and the concept is really neat. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, let's see, a little bit about me. We'll start at the beginning. I was just a kid who grew up with a father who took me doing a lot of outdoor activities. So, you know, being washed in a little bucket as an infant on camping trips and then skiing as a young age in Lake Tahoe. Uh, BMXing, skateboarding, um, but and then camping. So I just, at a very young age, was introduced to camping outside in the Sierras for a couple weeks um, on Boy Scout trips, and you know how to put clothes on and layering and weather, and just the mindset of just kind of dealing with being uncomfortable a little bit was set in very early, um, and that's a part a lot of doing a lot of these activities is just how good is your mental game because there's going to be some discomfort. Um, I graduated high school and I moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming when I was 20 years old. So that's 31 years ago. And that kind of set me into the next part of my life, um, just being a ski bum. So I was skiing six, seven days a week, working in a ski shop and then riding a mountain bike in the summertime, landscaping. And then I got into river guiding in the mid nineties, 95 down in Colorado. And so I kind of winter here and summer there and got into whitewater kayaking and did all that. Mountain bike really kind of took a back seat. I'd ride it to the bar, basically. I just wasn't mountain biking. Um, but I'd started mountain biking in the 80s in high school in Northern California. So I knew that kind of adventure and that, um, that open, how do I say, mountain biking to me has always been like a source of escape. Like I'm, I've done some races, but I'm not like a wired racer. 
Uh, I played competitive soccer growing up, and so that's a real structured thing. So the bike was always, I just want to go out with my friends and go out in the woods and just go on an adventure and no one tell me what to do. And that's kind of what cycling, as I came back to it probably 14 or 15 years ago, really became, is that my wife actually was like, I want to get a bike so we can just ride around the neighborhood and the country roads here. And, and I was like, eh, all right, I've kind of done the biking thing. They're not that cool. But then I'd come back to cycling and now it's like hydraulic brakes and full suspension and the bikes have gotten a lot better. (laughs) And so I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. And so I just jumped in like with both feet with her and we really got into cycling together as a couple. And uh, we did about 10 years ago for our um, wedding anniversary, the San Juan Hut trip. And that is, goes outside Durango um, and goes to Moab. And so that was a trip we did with a couple other friends. And it was a nice intro to bikepacking because you really aren't carrying all of your camping gear. The huts have them. But once we got done with it, we're like, wow, we want to do a lot more of this. But there's not that many huts. They cost money. Um, Our friends, I don't think they've ever done a trip since. And so we just started getting more and more lightweight camping and bikepacking gear or camping gear geared towards the bikes and really never looked. So you're... You know, just just knowing the timeline of mountain biking and all of that. So you started, must have started really early. Is this like the early to mid 80s in Northern California? I mean, that's obviously where mountain biking started. I mean, as we know it, I mean, were you out there on like a stump jumper in the, in the 80s, like tooling around uh, NorCal? Yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, I, I probably saw mountain bikes going all the way back to, you know, 84, 85. I probably didn't get on one and start riding till sort of 87, 88. But that was high school for me. And yeah, it was the original rock hoppers and stump jumpers and the old Diamondbacks, uh, 26 inch wheels, no suspension, uh, cable brakes. Um, we would manually drop our posts. To, we figured that out pretty early on. Um, but yeah, we would ride horse trails in the hills above uh, kind of Palo Alto area in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And that was mountain biking. And we, you know, just started venture riding. There was a great trail called the Skyline to the Sea. Mm-hmm. And that was probably my first original adventure rides. And um, you'd start out way up on Skyline Drive that divides the Silicon Valley from the, ca- the coast, kind of South Half Moon Bay. And 20 miles of single track and old fire road, you'd end up right on Highway 1. So you'd go uh, down. <laughs> not, not on that pati- there yeah. was quite a bit of up on that but yes that was kind of one of those like you park at the top and you work your way to the coast <laughs> yeah. but we do cross-country riding um you know we'd go up to lake tahoe and literally go up these canyons and hiking trails and access all the way up the backside of squaw valley ski resort bikes on our back walking up granite slabs and then ride the entire ski resort all the way down completely underbiked, just, you know, smoking brakes and just so rough and gnarly, but it was adventure. I mean, it was like a kid who grew up on a BMX bike. This was a geared version of that. So I had friends actually who worked at, um, for Tom Ritchie, Mm. guys, friends of mine in high school worked for Tom Ritchie um, down in his, I think at Morgan Hill might've been where he had it. And so I got a set of the very first two finger levers in high school. Um, and the Ritchie bikes. And so, yeah, it was, it was a cool thing to be a part of that being in that region where mountain biking started, it just was part of life really. I, I think I was kind of mountain biking right around the same time you were maybe a couple of years later. And, and I tried a few races and, you know, I'm, I'm not really built as a racer and no suspension, you know, crashes. I torqued my back and that was kind of it. And to this day I've been a roadie. So I think, uh, I wonder if I had started a few years later when you had the suspension and, you know, the lighter bikes and the, 
and the more comfortable ride if I wouldn't have stuck with it. But yeah, that was a that was a whole different era and how crazy it was to bomb all that stuff without you know without you know just even hanging on to the handlebars. So it was it was so hard back in those old days. Oh, absolutely, just just bone bone jarring riding for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So Gary, so tell us a little bit about, so this greater Yellowstone ecosystem ride that you did. Um, tell us a little bit about it. I know you did it with a friend. You guys planned it. Tell us, give us maybe an overview. Of yeah, what the sure. Was, um, and overview. Yep. Uh, so my friend's name is Don Carpenter. Um, he's an adventurer. He moved to the Jackson area, I think just a couple years after I did. Uh, we weren't friends back then, but in more recent years have become friends. And he's a big adventurer. He and his wife own the American Avalanche Institute. Um, he's guided on Denali. He's done a lot of backcountry stuff in Alaska. Um, got into the bikepacking. Similar reasons that I did was here is a low-risk, high-reward activity to get out and see the world. And um, so we kind of overlapped on that. And it was interesting. We were Jamie and I were actually we were down in Moab. She had a photo workshop. Um, and he called me up and left a message and was like, hey, I got this trip I've been kind of thinking about. thought you might be right the guy. Give me a call. And he just threw it out. And he's like, I've had this map on my wall for, I don't know, two decades that is the whole greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And I was starting to kind of plan a route on Gaia and look at circumnavigating the GYE. And the list of people that I thought that would be interested in something like this was pretty short. Uh, what do you think? And I got it. I was like, right out our doors, 1,200 miles. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And so that was sort of what he did. He just sort of threw it out there. And I was like, yeah. And Jamie was like, yeah, you should. Yeah, that's great. Let's start planning for time off and let's do it. And then he and I got together, yeah, you know, two, three, four times um, here at the house and just really got into the computer um, and really got into the nitty gritty of the route. Like, what were the, where were we going? What's the elevation gain? Um, and so the route is pri was primarily off pavement and a little bit of single track. We did have some paved climbs, um, and we did, what was it? 1200 miles, 85,000 feet of elevation gain in 14 days. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like, what is just, I guess a little bit, I mean, obviously the, you, you kind of outlined the rough route, but obviously you can't ride mountain bikes in the wilderness and Teton or in, in Yellowstone. So did you sort of, were you a lot in like say Bridger and all the sort of national forests and the areas that sort of surrounded is, was it like a circumnavigation of, of the parks? Is that roughly what it was? Yeah, correct. So, um, the GYE, you could, you could kind of describe as, you know, like a sky Island, like some of the desert areas, like, you know, Cochise stronghold and the Chisos mountains down in big bend, you know, as they rise up, they kind of have their own ecosystem. Well, the GYE obviously has a very intricate ecosystem within itself, the national parks, but as you get out to the peripheries of the outer mountains, you know, the Tetons, the Absorcas, the snakes, the winds, you get out into a lot more arid low lying areas. And so what we did is we really skirted along as much as we could into the mountains and the low-lying areas, and then we would cut corners. So we live here in Victor, Idaho, and I see the Grand Teton out my window right now. And so we went straight north along the foot of the Tetons on the west side, up into Island Park, and then we cut up and over the gravelly range mountains down into like Norris and Virginia City. So now we're kind of out of Bozeman. And this is a neat part of the trip. Um, he got access to a private ranch to avoid a big section of highway going into Bozeman. 
um, there's this area that, you know, he's one of the tycoons in this country. He'll rename nameless. His, his initials are TT. Um, and he, he, a friend of his up in Bozeman was like, well, maybe talk to the ranch manager at TT's property and see if you guys can get access. And so Don called this guy and was like, hey, this is Don Carpenter of the American Avalanche Institute. I'm doing this trip and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, yeah, sure, man. When are you guys coming through? And so eventually we rode to the end of a dirt road, past all the houses, and literally came to this big gate with a camera that just said TT Enterprises. And we just went right into this multi-hundred thousand acre private piece of property. And it took us five hours to cross this guy's ranch. I mean, pristine. And then we popped out just south of Bozeman, went into Bozeman, um, stayed at a friend's overnight, and then from there left Bozeman and went right up out of the mountains over Bear Creek, hike a bike into some single track, dropped into the Paradise Valley, which is what we're getting back to what Severio was saying. Um, that's the north end, uh, or it's north of Gardner, Montana, where all that flooding happened. So we got into the Yellowstone drainage at that point. And so the route was doing that, and then into Livingston, um, out of Livingston, we'd run the back of the Azorcas and, you know, out of dirt road, onto two track, hike a biking up single track, over mountain pass, dropping into the Red Lodge, Montana area. And then after that, we climbed Beartooth Pass. And if anybody's ever been in a car on Beartooth, or, you know, it's a 5,000 foot mountain paved highway that they don't even really clear until you're well into summer. And so we had eaten lunch in Red Lodge, and that was a town that actually had water flowing right down the streets of it during this last flooding they had, um, which is sad to think about. Um, and then we just climbed and climbed and climbed, and we got up to the true summit really close to sunset and then bombed down the other side of this. And it's a long enough descent down, and eventually we just descended into the dark and had lights on and camped on the other side. And then as far east as we went, we went to Cody. And then from Cody... We went southeast and made our way really out into some of the desert, Thermopolis and southeast of Thermopolis. So now you're on the far eastern side of the ecosystem, getting out into like painted desert type of stuff. Um, and that was, you know, we're a week into our trip at that point, probably. Um, but neat, yeah, neat. I don't know if you guys have any more questions, but to see a landscape like that from the seat of a bicycle, you know, you're covering enough ground that you're not walking, no one would want to walk the route we did, but you're seeing everything and the smells and the sights and the sounds and the health of the ecosystem um, pretty intimately. And it was a real neat, and I'll kind of throw this in. What we did is we, we at the end of our trip, we have a friend who um, used to work for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And it's a nonprofit that really helps with uh, some ecological environmental issues around the ecosystem. And we did a presentation. And so people were very interested in knowing our overall view of what we thought the health of the, health of the ecosystem was by being able to see that much of it intimately from a bike. And, and what did you see? What, what were your like, big takeaways on the health? Um, my takeaways were that the ecosystem is still quite healthy. You know, we were sort of in the interface between getting into wilderness where you can't bring a bike and where the ranching and the people have settled. Eventually, you know, a slope goes up and it's no longer suitable for doing much on. And that's kind of where life stops. And so you have farmers and ranchers that work their way up in the forest and have these ranches. Um, but what I, what I felt like was that the grazing issues and grazing rights, um, they rotate these, the, the livestock they keep the water pretty well I do, in, in a good shape. I don't know as far as, you know, fertilizer and things. 
But what I saw was I saw ranching and farming communities that had would basically be shooting themselves in the foot to mistreat the land. And so what I saw was ranches and farms that were very tightly run. You know, their equipment, everything's very orderly, their properties, what they were doing with their harvesting, um, the grazing and everything seemed to be, they were just pros at what they did. These are generational farmers and ranchers. Um, so that human interface, I don't feel like it done a lot of damage. I mean, certainly you're, they had in the past, well before I was alive, have cleared a lot of land to make these open pastures. But it seemed to be something that was somewhat symbiotic and working. Um, we did see elk. There's a lot of elk that kind of pushed down in that kind of farm field area just out of the forest. We saw bison, um, you know, in their, in their outside of the park boundaries, just kind of grazing, cruising around. A lot of deer, a lot of beautiful birds. Um, so to me, it seemed like it was pretty a pretty healthy ecosystem. Absolutely. Is this a route that like other people could like take on? I know that you mentioned you know you you traveled five hours just to get through some private ranch land. Uh, obviously, that would be an obstacle. So, are there alternatives that keep you on public land or public roads that you know could make this something like an adventure that other people could sign up for? And is that even something you would advise? <laughs> Yeah. To, uh, yes. 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 And yes. Um, and a little bit of no. Um, yes, it is something that people could navigate around the private land. You'd take a mountain highway into Bozeman versus going into the backcountry or the private ranch and gravel. Um, the route, Don, you know, we have the route on file. We've had people ask us about it. The tough part about a route like this, I think, is if you followed it other than the private land, you know, you know, pedal for pedal stroke. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty rowdy. Like it, 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 you just, it would take a certain type of cyclist and you know, the road touring person with the gravel bike would not like the mountain biking stuff. You know, you're, we were, you know, you're hike a biking for sometimes for a couple hours and it's really steep and you're riding trails. So we had drop bar 29er mountain bikes, um, rigid. So we kind of gone back to a little more what like the old mountain bikes felt like. But then you're coming down these like backcountry horse and moto trails, just bouncing over rocks and skipping your way down. Uh, traditional mountain biker trail riders, they wouldn't be into it. There is certainly a group of people out there who would think it's a cool endeavor, um, but it's just a big trip. You know, we had temps that were in the mid high 90s at times when we got out into the desert. So, yeah, we just take a certain kind of person that was wanting to do circumnavigate, you know, that, that kind of thing. What about a bike touring rider who rides on a racing bike? You think yeah, no. prob probably not? Probably no. not. Not for me. You no. Know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd have to hit the pavement. You could do the pavement the entire <laughs> yeah. way around, uh, yeah. and you could link a paved route around for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah it would be just a unique person that would want to do it. Yeah. yeah. What were some of the, like, what was kind of a high high and a low low on that trip? Because that's a Ooh. lot of miles. A lot of miles. Um, <laughs> I, I dubbed it the Soulful Cycling Challenge. And, um, you know, there's a lot of bikepacking races out there. It's a very popular thing. And people show up to bikepacking races with different agendas, but certainly people ride during the night and they just try and do it as fast as they can. And you have the pressure of other riders and racers to kind of keep you moving. You're catching up to somebody or trying to outrun somebody. You know, we slept. We would ride sun up to sundown a lot of days and we'd sleep mostly full nights. Um, so the Soulful Cycling Challenge was we're just motivating each other to do this. Um, the, some, right off the bat, we ended up with a few days of pretty heavy rain 
and it wasn't all day, but it was thunderstorms. Um, we had some, we called them glancing blows. And so we'd be getting a little bit on us, but then we would come either a few hours later or the next day and see an area that had just been hammered by rain. And so we ended up with the, the muddy bikes that with the tires that wouldn't spin and, you know, putting the chains all the way out to the outer rings of the cassette and the chain ring up front just to get the chain away from the wheel so it wouldn't wrap up. And at one point, Don's wheel, Don's tire wouldn't even, wouldn't even spin. Um, so those things, they slowed us down and put us a day or so behind pretty early on. Um, you know, just adds that challenge of like you're worried about mechanicals and stuff. Uh, another low was leaving Thermopolis and seeing this little electric sign outside a general store that said 97 degrees. And for mountain folk, that's hot. Like we don't, we're not really into the desert, <laughs> the, the heat thing. And, uh, you know, it's two in the afternoon and we're riding up this gradual uphill. And I just remember feeling like I was like, just going to pop from overheating. And then we're in this area with like this stagnant water and then we're being swarmed by flies, but you couldn't ride fast enough to get away from them. And I remember just, you know, like Don started trying to outrun them, but you know, you're going three degrees uphill. So like, you're not going very fast. And I just remember, man, I just got to like take a deep breath. I'm about to lose my marbles here. <laughs> this is gnarly. Um, you know, day, days like that, you know, like you know, the top endurance cyclists will cover more miles this in, in the races. But, you know, when you do the math on it, you know, there's days we did a couple of century rides back to back. You know, those are big days on a bike, especially when you're throwing in five, six, seven thousand feet elevation gain in a day. Um, so just being tired. Um, highs, at least some highs. Uh, descending off a of Beartooth Pass at sunset was pretty epic. That's a, you just feel yourself up in this big alpine zone and have a long way down to pedal. And so watching the light change and, you know, I had a light, a 1200 lumen light on my helmet and then a bar light. And I looked down at my speedo, I'm going like 40 miles an hour, just like into the dark. And, uh, Don's like, watch out for wildlife, you know, like running on the road. And fortunately, nothing, fortunately, nothing <laughs> happened. We were in grizzly bear country, um, definitely the first part of the route. And then a little break as we got out in the desert and then back into the winds. Um, so that's always in the back of your mind a little bit. Those bears are out there. Um, one of the, I would say one of the cooler experiences, I said this, we used Severia. We were out near a place called Lysite, Wyoming. And it's out between Thermopolis and Riverton, kind of out there in the eastern area of the desert. And we had this big cattle truck pull up behind us. And so we had stepped off the side of the road. Well, this cattle truck stops and he puts on his air brakes and, and all this dust goes flying off. And this guy comes stepping out and he's got these kind of lace up cowboy boots that are unlaced and his flies undone. And he comes walking over to us you know, kind of aggressively. And he's like, did you guys just come through the Bridger Creek area? And we're thinking, oh no, like maybe we like went through some private land because we did camp near some water that was near a ranch. And he's like, I've been following your tracks. And more or less the, the guy's mind was totally blown to see bicycle tracks this far out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and so he tells, starts telling us about the history of this little community of Lysite that was an old railroad stop. And he was a third generation, mostly sheep farmer but he passed on stories that his grandfather had shared of when Butch Cassidy and the Sundance gang went through that area. And they literally would give these guys horses to continue 
run fresh horses to outrun the law. And he told a story of some guy who ended up in some kind of a hotel or what would have been a bed and breakfast, and he got caught without his gun. And he defended himself with these massive, heavy coffee cups. And he was zinging coffee cups at some guy while the guy's like shooting a gun over these tables and he's throwing coffee cups. And so we're just standing there with jaws dropped listening to this guy share history of this part of the country. And he handed us this jug of water that he dug out from behind the seat that was like so old and the plastic was all opaque and gnarly, but we're in the middle of the desert. So yeah, sure. Thanks for the water, man. <laughs> and then he just, he just got in his truck and drove away. He's like, oh, I'm moving cattle. Thanks. Good seeing you guys. And left. And that was it. But to get wow. a window into something like that is like, man, like you can't pay for that stuff. It's always also kind of nice. Like, you know, when you, you'd expect, you know, there are at times there are, you know, there is like conflict between say ranchers and outdoorsy people. Right. And that kind of thing. And people can be very protective of their own of their property and that whatever. So it's always kind of nice when you're fearing it to be the worst, but it ends up being a really good, nice experience. It always kind of gives you a really nice feeling, you know? A hundred percent agree. Big, big surprise for sure. Although I feel like Gary's the kind of person who makes friends wherever he goes. So you're good like that. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, we, we, we would, we would, we would do our best, but you know, a couple guys, a couple guys on, on bicycles with camping gear, in some Montana or Wyoming ranchers land, you, you know, you never know how you're going to be met with that. But, uh, we didn't, yeah, we didn't really have, we had a lot of people that were really interested, you know, be outside grocery stores and doing some resupplies. And, uh, you know, I had a woman come up to me, we were trading off going to the Livingston grocery store, um, just doing a resupply before and going, you know, just way back up into the woods. And, um, she popped up and just sort of, what are you guys doing? And, you know, brief description of the trip. And she, told me that it, when she was younger, she was probably a woman close to 70, she's like, I toured my bike through China when I was like in my 20s. So we're talking about a lady who's over like you know, almost 50 years ago bike touring in China. And you could see her seeing me really was just something she thought was really neat. But then when she started telling her story, this twinkle in her eye came out. And I was listening to someone who had done something really cool during a time and in a place in the world where there's just what like ecotourism and adventure tourism did not exist at that time. And so it was just, and then, you know, we hung, she chatted with me for 10 minutes. It was like, okay, bye. And that was it. <laughs> and you just have these really cool little encounters. And, um, you know, she blew my mind as much as I blew hers by telling her what we were doing. But anybody who lived that we met that lived in any of the towns that we went through around the GYE, when we told them we were circumnavigating it, um, they thought that was a cool adventure. That actually, that kind of part of the story with, um, talking about resupplies and stuff leads to my next question, which was, so this was self-supported. So you guys did it all on your own. So how did that, I mean, obviously that's part of your planning, but how much food were you guys had on you? How much water did you have on you? Like, how did you, when you stop in these little towns, what are you picking up and putting in your bags like to take with you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll kind of start at the beginning with that. So during one of those initial meetings that I said, Don and I had, um, I had had a, little more experience kind of planning out routes. So what I did is I took it upon myself to go through and break down, okay, this is how many days we're there, this is how many miles, this is how many days we're planning, really just because of our own calendars. And what's a, a sizable chunk of time? Like how many miles and what kind of elevation gain are we getting into for each day? And where will that put us at the end for water, for a town? That was plan A. Plan A kind of started going out once the rain hit a little bit more. So you're kind of breaking down like, 
100 miles and over six or 7,000 feet of gain is a big day on a bike for me. So we were kind of keeping it a little bit under that. Um, towns, you know, you'd go in, we'd get a big feed at a, at a restaurant for sure, sit down. If there was a little place and we wanted to spend that kind of time, um, you know, you're wanting to put full meals. Like you're not going to do a trip like this eating goo packs. I'm not. And so I, we're going to, you know, have sandwiches and hamburgers and then maybe getting a plate of food to go and wrapping it up and putting it in a, you know, a large size, um, you know, maybe put in some foil and stuff, but then putting in a sort of large freezer bag to kind of keep things from dripping. I bring a little backpack that's a Sea to Summit backpack that stuffs into a little sack that's probably mm-hmm. like two golf balls in size and weighs three ounces. And so what I would tend to do is when we get to a town or a grocery store or a food place is I'd break that out and then I could stuff food and get bulkier food items that I didn't have to jam into my bike bags and have them get gross. So I'd throw that back on my back and then ride however long the rest of the day or a day, whatever, with some of that bulkier food. Um, I got really into fried chicken, honestly. For whatever reason, um, eating fried chicken, the protein and the... uh, just the juiciness was good. But, you know, oh, we would get... All of it. Yeah, totally. Tuba bagels, believe it or not, those little plastic cream cheese packets, those things are so pasteurized and processed, you know, those will go for a few days. Um, peanut butter. I love cheese and crackers and salami. So I'm getting like a box of wheat thins, ditching the box, deflating the bag, and then getting salami and cheese. And I'm trying to get the stuff that's already sliced to make it easier and then breaking it off and just mowing that. Certainly candy bars. I would do a few goo packs for like quick energy, like midway through a big push or a climb. Um, but we just found that eating food just kind of kept, you got out, you didn't get in that ebb and flow of like sugar spikes and stuff. And in some of those rural communities, you're not going to walk into some, you know, there's no GNC. You're not walking into some place like, oh, can I have some sports supplements and blah, blah. And they're like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, you might find like a tiger milk bar in some of those yeah. random places. And nobody eats those anymore. <laughs> that's, um, that's, so, yeah, that's, the calorie. Uh, <laughs> that's two mentions of tiger milk bars in a row on our reads. We actually just, yeah. We talked about those when we yeah. were talking to Kate. Yeah. <laughs> Kate Shade. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I've had, I've had friends on trips. We joked around. We actually, in central Idaho, um, on the Idaho Hot Springs tour, there was a little community there, and they were selling Tiger Milk bars. And I look over my buddy, I'm like, when was the last time you've seen one of these? But on this big three, you know, two and a half, three thousand foot climb, he started to bonk, and I'm like, hey man, I got a Tiger Milk bar for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like the original Power Bar. Those are the oh, original yeah. Grody Power Bars that are like you just got to gnaw on those things. Were like the original ones. So um, I can see why Kate knew about those. Yeah. Sure. Look how far. Look yeah. how far we've come. I know. Yeah. We've all come so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, water and calories. Back to that. Um, we definitely were doing a lot of the filtering. So you know, your SteriPen or um, Aquamura. Those are really the two-part drops. Trying to do things that are as quick as possible. I didn't want to spend the time and energy with a big pump filter. I'm already too darn tired. It takes too long. So anything that was a squeeze filter or um, using a SteriPen or drops was kind of what we would do. So you could just grab water, drink it instantly, and then get it, put some tabs in and go. And, you know, I think probably, I think I probably had four liter capacity, like three big bottle, liter bottles, and then a bladder that I would stick that I'd fill um, and put in my frame bag. Um, Dom was pretty similar. I think he kind of went with a couple bottles and then had a fairly large drum bag. And he has an extra large frame on his bike. And so when he needed to like, really bulk up. I mean, I think he probably had like seven liter capacity. Mm-hmm. 
So, so what now? Speaking of bikes, what kind of bike are you riding? I mean, is it a full suspension, just a front suspension, carbon, steel, aluminum? Like, what, 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 what kind of bike are you using for these kind of trips? Uh, so, Jason, is which one of your bikes did you okay. take on this trip? Is yeah. one of the questions. Okay. Well, yeah, but you yeah, know. Well, yeah, I used to, how, you, how do you choose, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I used to you work in bike shops, and so being a bike shop guy, you you know you build up bikes. Um, I, both of us were riding sal- Salsa Fargo mm-hmm. and the Salsa Fargo was sort of the first of its kind. And I'm trying to think when the gen one came out, might've been 2009, maybe. And it is a dropped bar 29er mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And so they came about the idea of let's take, you know, what is at the time really only like cyclocross bikes basically that were road bikes with knobby tires yeah and so they were like well let's go off of that let's make the frame and fork clearance to put true mountain bike tires like up to 2.4 i think at the time um but the drops are road they look similar to road bike bars but they're a lot more flair to them just a wider bar and they have fork mounts and so you can put bags and or water bottles on the fork so we ran rigid bikes with cable brakes cable disc brakes and for the simplicity and the efficiency of the of the bike, that just makes a nice bike. Certainly have those bikes, you can put a front fork on. Um, and there are times when it would have been really nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, I'm surprised when you said that. I was shocked you didn't have at least front suspension. Just, you know, with that much, those many, that many miles over that kind of terrain. That's impressive. Fl- yeah, and there's places where you bounce around. I'm a tire yeah. pressure guy. Yeah. And so if I knew we had a big section of pavement, um, I'd, I'd sit down for a second and, you know, stuff mm-hmm. a piece of food in my mouth and make my tires, you know, 40 PSI and make them rock hard. Yeah. And then when we get into bumpy stuff, it takes so little time to push on a Presta valve yeah. and just set out a little bit so you kind of make your ride better. Um, if I had to do it again and I was doing the route again, yeah, I might throw a suspension fork on my bike. I don't yeah. think it would have changed the performance, you know, or added weight enough. Um, yeah, but I, I bought, mine's titanium, back to that. I have a titanium Fargo, and that's my second one. I bought one in 2013, and that's when I really sort of went from riding my five-inch travel full suspension mountain bike on gravel rides around our valley because I just wanted to ride early before the snow all melted. But then I was getting into like a 40-mile bike ride on a, a basically an enduro bike. And I'm like, I should just get a bike for this. And the local bike shop was selling them, and I did the whole payment thing and um, got my first Fargo. And then after working in a bike shop and putting, I don't know how many thousands of miles on my Fargo and going through three drivetrains, five bottom brackets, a couple wheel sets and everything, I was like, you know what, I'm going to build up a new one. So I kind of built up the fancy tie one. Um, Don ran a steel one with a carbon fork and... Like me, had already gone through a couple drivetrains and was on a second set of wheels and all that. And um, yeah, the bikes are very suited for that kind of riding. Multiple hand positions, uh, comfort. You know, big deal being on a bike that long is comfort. You really, I've come to learn that you don't have to be the fittest cyclist to accomplish these distances. Your bike needs to be comfortable and you have to have good self-knowledge, self-awareness of taking care of your body, not getting behind the eight ball. Because you get like pain in your neck or your hands and, you know, or saddle sores. I mean, your party could be over um, just because you haven't taken the, the, the proper things with a bike fit. Um, but that was about it. I had, I had comfort aero bars. And so, I, you know, unlike an aero like a tri bike where you're really low like this, you know, I had 50 mil blocks and very long carbon with bar wrap. And so I could be in a comfort position, a little bit aero because it brings the shoulders in. 
but I could uh, literally just take my hands off and just be resting on the forearm pads and have almost no pressure on my hands. And I could be in that position for, you know, 30 minutes at a time if I wanted. And so that was a, that really helped my body to stay comfortable for sure. Yeah. Well, fit is like, I think we, I've talked about this on the show. That's like literally as a cycling nerd, people always ask me like, what's, you know, what kind of bike should I get? I'm like, you know, the first thing, just make sure whatever you get fits. Before you even know what kind of bike, like fit is like, make sure ride great or horrible. You know, if you have a bad, especially doing something like your thing, anything, anything long, you know, make sure the bike fits you. And, and geometry too, it's kind of funny. You mentioned the cross, the, 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 the cross bikes. It's like one thing with those, it's like, yeah, they had the fat tires and whatever, but it was a very aggressive sort of racing geometry. One thing with these gravel bikes, it's a much more sort of like somewhere between a mountain bike and the, and a, and a racing bike. So it's a much more easier kind of, you know, uh, uh, geometry to ride if you're going to do those kinds of trips. Absolutely. Yeah. Com comfort's king for sure. And if you look at tour divide riders and people who do real fast times, um, you know, their average moving speed isn't, isn't really, they're not cruising along at 20 miles an hour the whole time they ride longer hours. And so they're, they're doing a 20 hour day on the bike and their resupply and their stops are, are pretty minimal. Like they try and be efficient, but they're be, they're comfortable on their bikes. They're able to be and sit and be comfortable on their bike for a lot of hours. And that's how the success comes. Mm -hmm. And do you bring rib protection? Sorry. That's a, that's, I haven't, I haven't razzed uh, Jeff in a little while from his uh, broken ribs from his bike packing trip. But, uh, <laughs> oh no, was that, was that the big lonely? No, no, no that was before okay. that. I was, I was riding a, a section of the Oregon timber trail and I was bombing down oh. a hill. Yeah. I was bombing down a hill and had a little incident where I went over the handlebars and into a tree rib first. <laughs> Fortunately, oh. honestly, like it could have been my head, you know? <laughs> sure. So, so, um, that, so timber trail trip was over at that point. <laughs> kind of like we actually, I actually continued on. We finished out the day we got to our camp and, uh, and then the next day we, we, we like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta take, get off the trail for a bit. So we, we went into town and, um, I ended up going to an urgent care and getting x-rays and they're like, yeah, you got, you, you cracked, you know, this, you fractured a non-displaced fracture. And, uh, so I rested for another day and then we got back on, we picked the trail up and sisters and went for, you know, just like a, an easy ride without all of our gear and stuff. And just, just to kind of like close it out, you know, that section that we were doing. But I think I've learned not to, um, you know, like a little self-control is sometimes useful <laughs> for self-preservation. <laughs> Um, so Gary, aside from our amazing trip that we're doing in September, so we're doing, we're revisiting the bikepacking trip that started it all, doing the San Juan Mountain Huts with a bunch of friends. Um, and Gary has been great because he's been like sending care packages and this is this bag for your bike and here, here's this for your seat post and here's this for your rack. So it's been very exciting. Um, but aside from our adventure, do you have any other fun things planned or just being the good one of the group and uh, training for the one that we're doing. <laughs> uh, I do. Yeah. I've, I've actually, this next weekend going to do a trip that's local. Um, friend of mine, Jeremy, who I do a bunch of bikepacking with lives down in Alpine, Wyoming, which is an hour or so from here. And he's put together a 200 mile route called the caribou loop. And this would be the, this is going to be the second year of that. And so we're going to do a three day, 200 mile 
fun ride. Um, I don't know how many people are in the group. Another friend of mine who lives here in Victor um, is going to ride it as well. Jeremy's in recovery from COVID. Um, he's not he's just kind of taking him out a little bit. So we have, and we're looking forward, looking towards the weekend. It's classic, just going to be like the hottest weekend we've had all summer. And, you know, 90 degrees around here at 6,000 feet is not, it's pretty uncomfortable. So it'll be a hot weekend. So that's coming up, um, Caribou Loop Trail. It's gravel centric route. And uh, then trying to probably do some scouting missions. Um, we've been going over to central Idaho the last few years and been exploring some trails and passes that overlap with the Idaho Hot Springs Tour, which is an adventure cycling route, as well as the Smoke and Fire route, which is a route that a guy in Boise put together. It's about 400 miles and it's turned into a race. Um, so we went over there and did sort of a modified version of the Smoke and Fire a few summers ago. And I just really started scouring maps and looking at trails. And so then we started finding these high country passes with single track. And we've been going over there the last few years. And, um, you know, there's some hike a bike or a gravel ascent, but then there's like 4,000 foot descents in these mountains of central Idaho, just kind of west of the Sun Valley area. And our plan now is after scoping this out is to put together a multi-day route that kind of picks like what would be the ultimate bike packing route for a person. Well, you want some cool single track. A bunch of hike a bike or a little bit of hike a bike to keep it honest when you're sick of all the rough country jump on a gravel road along a beautiful section of the south fork of the boise river how about some hot springs sounds good roll into a little community how about burgers and beer back onto some big gravel climb more single track and so there's a route that we've been putting together the team of guys i've been riding with and mostly me on the computer um we've dubbed it the sawtooth slaughterhouse for now that's just a nickname um, but yeah, look for that in the future because there's a friend of mine who owns a bike shop over there in Haley and just opened up called Trailhead Bikes. And so we're looking to have this route go in and out of Haley, Idaho um, and be something to share and sort of showcase this area that has a lot of really interesting terrain um, for an adventure cyclist, like a mountain biker that doesn't mind putting some gravel miles in. So we got some so scouting to do. We, we, we don't... We, yeah, yeah, I was gonna say when you're planning these trips, and you know, obviously scouting in real life is important. What are what mapping? You mentioned Gaia, but like what um, what mapping software are you using? What technology are you using to sort of do the pre research? And you know, looking, seeing like, is there a single track there? Isn't there one? Like, what's road? Like, what are you using? I'm a ride with GPS guy, and I uh, I had a friend. I literally bought him a pizza and a six pack of beer and said, "Teach me how to use ride with GPS." And he came over to the house and gave me the basics and then i just started playing around with the app i found it it just works for me and it's really the only one i've used a lot of um, but between you can just go from different map apps you know they 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 have uh, straight up usgs maps on there and you're looking at like a, a picture of a map but then you can go to like the hybrid settings where you're doing it has like a google earth and as you zoom in you know it's popping up and name stores and you can click on and look at businesses and then another nice thing is so as you or designing a route, you know, you're connecting road, it'll say follow road. So you just start putting waypoints in and it'll link them together. Um, if it's a, something that's on the map, it's a two track obscure single track, you can draw lines and then drag the line and try and get it as accurate as you can. But what I really like about it is then I can break it down. I can go on to the elevation profile, click and drag, and it'll highlight a section of a route and then give me the exact mileage and elevation for that section. And I do that because I just want to know what am I getting into? I just, 
I tend, I like the, the open-endedness of adventure, but to calculate things when I'm on a trip, it just helps me relax and enjoy it. Like the X factor is always going to happen, but to just have just too much unanswered to me, it's like you just, there's too much mental focus on that. And is there anything worse than like an unexpected, like ass kicking climb, no matter what you're doing, hiking, you know, backpacking, cycling, if all of a sudden you're on like an 11% climb, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you didn't know it was coming and it's at the end of your ride and you're already kind of gassed and then you got to like get, get up that thing. There's not much, that, that's always just the worst. <laughs> yeah. Cause if you, yeah. And if you, if, you know, you didn't fill up a water bottle and you should have, or you're kind of low on calories and you encounter this right before you get to camp and all your this ball buster of a thing like this is a drag we did have that happen on one of these missions last summer where i had scoped out um what would have connected a three thousand foot descent well basically in 15 miles almost six thousand feet of descending and there was this little section of trail that was going to be a couple miles and about 1500 gain that we were going to have to i i thought hike a bike no big deal man i zoomed in as much as i could i'm looking at map apps there's you know there's definitely sections of it that have been ridden blah blah and when we got to this little section of trail sections of it were totally gone and eroded into the creek bed so we were out there at you know almost 100 degree temps there in central idaho and my buddies were like, there's no trail. Let's turn around or go down this other one. I'm like, hold on a sec. So I just dumped my bike, climbed up, went over, kind of went up and over this knob, found where the trail was again and came back. And I literally just put my bike on my back, started stomping up the hill. And man, all my friends are cursing. It's like, all right, all right, all right. So I'm grabbing bikes and making it happen. And then we get through to another section. We're like, all right, the trail's here. We're fine. We get up around the corner and another section's gone. So now you're like digging your feet in and wishing you almost had like dirt crampons on and you got 60 pound bikes and it's super hot. Eventually we did get through it and then accessed this saddle to another three and a half thousand foot section, a single track down to the middle fork Boise. Absolutely gorgeous riding, incredible canvas, big rock spires and flowers and water and the whole deal. Um, but one of my buddies ended up getting pretty far along with the whole heat exhaustion thing and had a lot of cramping. And we got to this little spot where it's a dirt roadside little hot spring resort with beers and snacks and uh he was totally laid out on the concrete and we're now doing like let's get you hydrated let's get you out of this space and we're changing the route and not going as far as we want and had to modify because of that situations like that are fun to laugh at after but when you're in them it's like that's kind of a bummer you know sort yeah. of you know when your buddy's like welling up with tears saying something's wrong with me and you know he's a really tough person mm -hmm. it's kind of a drag Sorry, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but it's good. Yeah. Like you said, like you modified the trip. Like, and it's, I think that's part of yep. adventuring, right? It's like part yep. of adventuring is that you plan as much as you can, but you also have to be willing to let it go. Like when things get a little wonky. Um, yeah, absolutely. And some of my other activities, you know, the, you know, you backpacking, backcountry skiing, did a lot of whitewater kayaking, did some exploratory kayaking out of the country and, a lot of that is you're just reading the situation as it comes. And so you get into a bikepacking situation where, you know, it's almost like a dumbed down version in some ways of that. Like you can just stop and you can assess. And um, so that's why I like this, that sport in particular is that you have high reward with a lot lower risk than some of those other things like mountaineering and exposed things. So now what do you think of e-bikes? Would you ever uh, consider taking like an e-bike out and, uh, to sort of help, you know, lengthen your, your adventures or to, um, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. And e-bikes are definitely a hot topic for sure. 
Um, the limitation with an e-bike for a trip like that is that you'll just run out of battery power. Like there's, there's no way to do that unless you have some kind of like auxiliary batteries and the ability to charge them. Um, I have friends who are very competent and accomplished mountain bikers and really strong pedalers that have gotten into the full suspension mountain bikes. And uh, what they do is they go ride trails that they don't tend to go gravitate towards because they're so steep and hard to pedal or hike a bike on. And they're able to, and one of them's, a, you know, both of them are dads, the two guys I'm thinking of. And so their windows of time are kind of short for when they can go do these adventures. And so they go bang out what would be five hour rides in, you know, two hours. And they're doing three, 4,000 plus feet of climbing and riding really, really great quality backcountry single track in these short windows of time on them. Um, so I, yes, is it something I've thought about? I have ridden one, um, one of the rental bikes at the local shop. The owner was like, yeah, let's go for a new bike ride, check it out. And they're interesting. They're, they are amazing technology. They weigh a lot, so if the battery dies, you're bumming. But um, you get a certain cadence going, and yeah, you're you're climbing steep slopes and uh, really great, tra- you know, full suspension and uh, and as well for utility purposes. Like where Severia lives in Bend, I mean, my gosh, having an e-bike around there, like you never even need a car. You know, you could cruise everywhere on one of those. So um, I think they're I think they're neat and they have a great application. Yeah, it's interesting. I like the framing of it of, you know, for some people creates the opportunity to do things that they wouldn't otherwise, like the dad with limited time or the mom with limited time, like you actually get a little bit more adventure in. Um, and you're, it's still, I mean, the thing is, it's still pedal assist. It's not like, you know, it's not you're just like turning on a motorcycle. So there's still some, there's still some work in happening. Oh, absolutely. And if you, yeah. you can go hard and get a, you know, get a high heart rate. And I've seen folks around here where I live that are you know, these folks are in their 60s and they are mountain bikers, but they're just not going as much riding their own bikes. I mean, we have we have some, um, you know, big beginner intermediate riding around here, but we also have a lot of riding that to get into the goods is a pretty substantial climb. And I think these people just made the decision of I would rather just be out riding. And if the pedal assist helps me get there, why not? I do see myself going that direction at some point in my cycling yeah. career. If it means that I can ride more. Yeah, absolutely. I've also, I know a lot of couples where one rider is just a stronger rider than the other. So it's not fun to ride together because one person is always in like the suffer fest, you know, can't keep up mode. And the other person is like a little frustrated because the other person can't keep up. And so sometimes within, you know, partnerships, it's a fun, it's a fun way to sort of equalize so that both people can have fun together and be out on the same trails and doing the same things. Absolutely. Absolutely. We talked about the e-bikes. What about, are you using, uh, Clinchers? Are you using tubeless? What what kind of tires are you are you using for on trips like this? I can answer uh, that for Gary. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> we've been instructed to go tubeless. Yeah, I'm a big advocate now. I have them on my road bike, and I'm a huge advocate for them. Yeah, I pretty much don't ride with tubes on any of my bikes, whether it's a fat bike, a gravel bike, or a mountain bike. And I tend to err towards the durable casing tires. Um, you know, I'm over 200 pounds and I put some weight on my bike and can ride decently fast on the downhill. So I don't, that's not a place I'm going to save weight. So I do, yeah, durable tires with tubeless and I'll even, it's, if it's a desert trip, like we'll go down to, you know, like the Cocapelli trail or anything where there's, you know, San Rafael swell, I just go overkill on the stands as well. I mean, I don't, I don't care. That's not a weight thing either. It's just, I'd rather less dealing tire plugs. I have very accessible. I tend to put them in a little seat post zip bag and have them right there. And 
I've had a few instances where, you know, I've got a, I've got a puncture and if I get my thumb over the top of it and keep the air from going out and get in and get a plug and get that plug in and hit it with the CO2 or um, get a pump out, you know, my inconvenience has, has been minimal. And so for me, I just, that's, that's kind of what I do. So, yeah. I actually yeah. rode on Sunday and my, uh, my little Prestivel snapped in my tubeless front wheel. So, you know, it's a front wheel. So I just grabbed the front wheel from another bike, but it's a clincher. And literally a mile and a half in, I caught a goat head and got a flat. I'm like, if anything sells you on tubeless, it's that, right? Like literally I, I, two miles in the last like, like seven, eight months on a clincher and I got a flat. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty good technology. It really sure. is. It's really, really yeah. come a long way. It's fantastic. Yeah. We didn't on our GYA trip. We didn't have one flat tire. That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> kind of proves its point right there, you know, and I don't even know if I didn't even have to use a tire plug. Um, I have had on other trips, um, multi-day, there's a route, a route and a race that leaves Victor and goes to Hamilton, Montana to red barn cycles called the Fitz barn. And the two owners of the shops kind of made this 330 mile multi-day race between the two. And, uh, I was running these other tires and, you know, you'd just be all of a sudden along. You're like, what's all that moisture squirting onto my leg? And, you know, you hit some sharp piece of something, they're spewing, but you're not ever having to even get out of, you know, if you have a tire plug and it hasn't torn real bad, it's, you know, it's fixed pretty quickly and you're just on your way. Like very, in, the inconvenience is minimal. Yeah. I've had a couple, couple leg, I've had a couple spurters, but I haven't had to even put a plug in. I have one, but I haven't had to put it in. Generally it's, you know, by the time I realize what's going on, I look and I'm like, well, it's not leaking anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 The sport and technologies between suspension and hydro brakes and dropper posts and tubeless tires it's just a more enjoyable activity to ride a bike these days i think i mean it's just gotten better and better sure has so what are some um recent fun adventures you've been on i know i think last year you did white rim in a day right white rim trail <laughs> yeah yeah we were uh, um, that was we did in three or four days and we did it together <laughs> Yeah, correct. Severia, myself, uh, my wife, Jamie, her brother, and another friend. I, dr I drove SAG for the White Rim a few years ago. And that's a, yeah, a 100-ish mile desert trip on a Jeep road. Um, we were going to trade off and I was going to ride a bit. But the, the responsibility of the driving, I was like, there's, I had like a SUV, a soccer mom SUV. I wasn't even in the Jeep. So I was like, nobody else is going to have to be the responsible for this. And it was scarier than the riding for sure. So yeah. I wanted to go back and ride it. And this past spring, um, myself and three others, guys, some folks that I ride with quite a bit, and uh, um, Jeremy and Nikki, she's a doctor and races 100-mile mountain bike races, and my friend Jeremy and Billy, we all did it in a day. And that was really fun. And, you know, five, six liters of water, a bunch of snacks, started the ride early. Um, on the way to the ride, got a, they got a flat tire in their van. So we're kind of scrambling to kind of keep the speed up on the time because – one day rides you're going to end up at the in the dark at the end um but yeah that was good that's what we did 95 miles and seven, almost 8000 feet of gain in a day and that's a pretty good day particularly coming out of winter when um, we're not riding as much riding the fat tire bikes but you just don't you're not getting the miles so we took our time i think we had a little over 10 hour riding time but i think probably total time for the day was probably almost 14 hours we're like eating sandwiches and checking out the views and taking pictures and um, really cool experience. So if anybody's interested in a one day cool challenge, the white rim's definitely a neat one. 
It's gorgeous. It's it's just so pretty. Like every time you turn a corner, you're like, where am I? <laughs> yeah, you're you're in Canyonlands National Park. So yeah, yeah. Go- absolutely gorgeous. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'm going to give a shout out just to my friend JP. You guys probably heard of Jay Peterberry. And uh, I would contribute what I'm doing on a bike to Jay and his wife, Tracy, as much as anybody. And they live in our community. And Jay certainly has his way of doing his racing and events. But the thing, meeting him as an adult is someone who had already done a lot of other adventurous activities and worked as a guide and knew about self-care and taking care of people and managing groups and myself. He taught me, probably the thing he taught me the most, not about packing the bike and those things and what gear to take and all, a lot of the systems was the mindset. And just taking a deep breath um, and, and just assessing a situation and not allowing yourself to unravel. And you know, you choosing words instead of saying, I'm suffering, saying things like I'm challenged right now. And it really helped me as a person, a guy in his forties kind of tap into a whole other level of being an athlete and an adventurer, um, with a more mature attitude. And it's been a lot of fun. Like I've gone off and done these things and, you know, I might be tired and sweating, but just adopting a mindset, um, God, it just, it just makes it or breaks it so much. And so those guys, Jay and his wife, Tracy, definitely, I would say, are people like any of the cycling things I've talked to you about, I'm going to do and have done. Um, they were certainly a huge catalyst and an influence for that. So I love that. Mentors. What are some of your mantras? I love that. Like, instead of like, I'm suffering, I'm challenged. Like, what are some of the mantras that you, I, I need to write these down because I'm sure I'll be using them when we're together in September. So, um, yeah, what, yeah. Um, what are some of the I, good mantras? Uh, you're doing great. Keep going. You know, that's, that's just kind of like the real simple one is it, it tends to happen on big climbs for me. And, uh, you know, you're, you're tired. It's either it's hot or you're trying to get somewhere a certain amount of time, you know, multi-day trips or cumulative fatigue, um, or a big ride. And, you know, you're you, like, I'm not a climber by nature. You know, I have friends who just absolutely love it. You know, they weigh 50 pounds less than me and just have that high heart rate hummingbird warm up quick. I'm definitely more like the diesel guy. And so once I get going, and so I get through climbs and I take them on and I like them, but just the, you know, there's times when you're just like, man, this is definitely kind of wearing me out. It's like, you're doing great, keep going, you're doing great, keep going, you're doing great, keep going. And it just keeps saying something like that over and over and over. And looking around, you know, the scenery, I'm not a road cyclist. I think it's great and it's fast and efficient. I like nature, so I'm just like checking out the landscape in the woods and the deal. And um, humor, I'm a big humor guy when things get difficult. You know, a buddy of mine will say something and I'll be like, oh my gosh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, and all this, he'll be like, I'm tired. And I'm like, oh yeah, why? And we just find, we just, we use humor to get through a lot of these things for sure. You have a choice. You're going to complain and you're going to focus on the negative or you just, kind of take the piss out of your friend and or yourself and then just keep going and get through it and it's so funny how it happens you climb you'll be hiking or pushing your bike or pedaling up a big climb and it's so funny how quickly as soon as gravity takes over it's just like all gone you just totally forget about it (laughs) As, as a fellow sort of diesel kind of guy too i always find it sort of like there's like a magical grade 
where all the, it goes from you feeling good and keeping up and being great to all of a sudden, you know, you're getting gapped and you're dying. You know, it's a, you know, <laughs> depending on how fit I mean, I can I can improve that percentage of that grade. You know, like yeah, yep. when I'm eating less cheeseburgers and riding a lot, you know, it might be as high as eight percent, you know, or whatever. But you know, now it's probably more like five or six percent. But it is funny because I do the guys I ride with are much lighter as well and much better, more natural climbers. But it is. You know, oh, four percent. Yep, I'm right here with you. <laughs> you know, you hit you hit that magic number, and they're like, oh, they're just they don't seem to be working any harder, but you know, they're 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 going away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that can be frustrating, but yeah, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. I my yeah. key to success has just been a lot of self understanding. Yeah. Like, what are my limitations? Where are my strengths? And just hydrating and food and a few supplements. And uh, I told a friend of mine that it's an incredibly talented mountain biker who was getting into the multi-day stuff. And I said, honestly, I'm successful not because I'm the fastest or fittest. I, it's because I know my myself. Mm -hmm. I just I just keep myself in a good range of self-care. And it allows me to keep going forward with a smile on my face for longer. And that's what works for me. That's a good advice and a good thing to remember for sure. Like mental attitude, taking care of yourself, like not getting so focused on the task at hand that you forget all the things that are allowing you to do, to, to do that task. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Jay, Jay's got this do your work thing. It's kind of one of his mantras, um, head up, look around, but he does a lot of the winter ultras. like, I did a rod and stuff and I've done the fat pursuit. My wife's done the fat pursuit. I'm not aspiring to do the Iditarod. That the level of responsibility, and even though certain athletes certainly have figured out a way to be pretty comfortable in that environment, there's discomfort. It's just part of it. You just don't talk about it. But the do your work part is important, and a lot of that is, you know, hydrated food. If you're too hot, make sure you don't sweat. Take your layers. If you're getting cold know what your systems are to more quickly get in a better place. Like having your gloves, if you're gonna, if you're getting cold, having a wind jacket, having a buff, something to just keep yourself in that place. So the do your work thing, don't allow yourself to get in an uncomfortable place because you've gotten a little lackadaisical. Um, it doesn't have to be like, you know, militant, but it just has to be paying attention um, to that, the environment and what's going on with your body. And if you just kind of stay doing your work as well as keeping the attitude, they sort of feed each other really well. But speaking of the timber trail, Jeff, what uh, we were over in Bend this spring and we were loving some of the local trails, definitely riding um, you know, the Tyler's Traverse and the Phil Zone. And I sort of scoped out going to Oak Ridge, but it's, the timber trail has been on my radar. So after I left there, I really started getting in and geeking out on that, looking at some of Gabe Amadeus's info and uh, that that's right up my alley. So if I come over there at some point, I might pick your brain because I I really truly enjoy multi day riding and I like single track mountain biking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's something I want to. I'd love to go back and do the whole thing at some point. Um, the only tier that I'm I have firsthand familiar familiarity with is the day shoots tier because it's in my, in my backyard. So, um, but uh, yeah, I love that concept of like experiencing you know, an entire state, you know, from one end to the other, um, you know, by human powered transport, you know, on a bike, on a, on your feet, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Crossing a whole state like that. Yeah. That's a neat, neat concept. That's kind of cool. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What bike were you riding for that? I was riding a salsa timberjack. Nice. So front, you know, a hard tail front suspension, pretty beefy. 
And uh, that's my first and like, it's really my only, was my only bike until just recently. I got it picked up a gravel bike. So um, now I'm trying, actually, this leads to a great question. Like I'm going to be attempting to complete the Big Lonely again this October. And a good portion of that route is on gravel roads. So a gravel bike would work great for that, but it all kind of comes down to weather conditions. And this race is in, it's, it's called a race. I'm not racing. The, uh, it all comes down to the weather conditions. You know, like, is there rain? Is there going to be mud? Is there going to be, you know, dicey conditions? And so I was wondering like, what kind of factors go into your decision as to what kind of bike to use for a particular route? And is weather a component of that? Um, yeah, weather, yeah, weather can be a component. Um, if I'm planning a vacation, I certainly don't want to avoid the rain, uh, proper kit, always tire clearance. Um, you know, you can get into mud and junk and find that you've decided to put the biggest tire that your bike's recommended to carry or take because you wanted to have the, the volume and traction maybe for the rougher sections. And now you're realizing you're getting into the mud and you're your tire won't spin in the frame because you decided to put the biggest tire. Um, so that, that would be a, a bit of a choice for, for sure. I've looked at some of the videos on the big lonely and seen what bikes people are riding. And it seems like the fastest riders are going on gravel bikes, but I also saw some of the terrain being pretty rough as well. Like they're actually riding some bumpy, rough single track. Um, I don't know what gravel bike you have. I would probably be running at least a two O or a two, two mountain bike tire, something fast rolling, but a little more volume than like a 40C or 50C gravel tire. Um, suspension, I mean, it's kind of one of those toss-ups, like a Timberjack with a 225 Mezcal and a set of bar ends on it. Maybe put a pair of Comfort Aero bars. That would be a pretty good bike for a ride like that. Um, once again, it's kind of what, what your goals are for comfort as well, how much bouncing you want to deal with for that um yeah know, the, gra- okay. the, the multi-day bike versus the day ride and gravel bike are a little bit different yeah. Like, yeah well yeah and i was kind of thinking i'm like i was toying with the idea of, of using a gravel bike because of sort of the lightness you know it's like trying to cut down some of the weight but on the other hand that that uh, the timberjack is super comfortable you know like it's a lot of weight but it's just comfortable to ride, you know, it's like I, I, and I did, that's what I used last year. And it, you know, I was comfortable in the saddle all day long. So, well, I would say if you, if you, if you're into having a different, I talk about ride experiences when I ride different platforms of bike or particularly tires and they provide different ride experiences to say it's better or worse. I don't tend to use those words, but I sometimes will ride bigger tires than needed because the ride experience is different. You know, you get this big voluminous tire that's just eating up the downhill and you can play with the tire pressure. Um, there was a little while when I was trying to ride as much rough terrain as I could on my Fargo and see just what you could turn a, you know, a drop bar 29er into the most aggressive trail riding. And that's a different ride experience. You know, ride your gravel bike and have a different ride experience, you know? Um, <laughs> it's just about the comfort thing, how much are you bouncing around or not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, the ride experience. It changes the experience. <laughs> you know, pointy spear people, the people that are definitely there, you know, they're athletes that are going to have an FKT or, um, you know, a couple couple guys or gals battling it out for, you know, 30-hour times on something like that. 
that's only a small percentage. Everybody else kind of just comes in with what their goals are. And if it's to go a little faster or have a different ride experience, you know, that's, that's kind of your own deal. And that's one of the things that's cool about the bikepacking world and the bikepacking events. Um, you can still have a huge success and be very proud of yourself and, you know, be DFL, really. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the new name for your team. <laughs> yeah. Their well, team name was the SKT. They were the SKT team last year they were going yeah 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 there you go <laughs> team dfl would be a fun yeah. one too <laughs> i want to be on that team <laughs> yep. uh, awesome well this has been super fun and i have to agree with jason gary you have a really good voice you yeah. just really do you have like a great a great audio voice um so thanks for joining us but anyways no but seriously thank you so much for sharing your biking experience, um, sharing your adventures, giving us insight into things that probably most people are never going to do or try to attempt, but like love living vicariously through you. I would encourage people to, you know, if you live in a place that has, is special to you or there's a place that you want to go that's special, um, there are routes in a lot of places that you can go on bikepacking.com and just go ride or with a little bit of work and looking at some gazetteer maps and a little bit of knowledge of um one of the apps go create a route go go make a real cool personal connection doing an adventure and preferably on a bike because that just is a really nice efficient way to go fast enough to cover ground and slow enough to just really feel it you know we never left our never got in a car don lives half an hour or half a mile from me i rode over at his house met him in the morning Two weeks later, we rode into town. A couple of friends met us on the outside of town. We stopped in, went to the brewery, had some food and a beer, and then he dropped me off on my house and kept going back over to his house, and that was our trip. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I yeah. love, yeah, I love that good reminder of sometimes it's about just going out your front door mm -hmm. and seeing and seeing what adventure you can create. That Absolutely. is a great takeaway. Yeah. Thanks, thank, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, and it's yeah, been awesome talking you. to you. Yeah, nice <laughs> meeting all of you guys. That was really fun. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore ap or the Almost There Adventure Podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash A-T-A-P. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we talk to hiker and safety expert Ned Tibbetts. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.